Hey, this is Dave. I've got a couple things to tell you before we dive into the next episode. First off, our production schedule. For the last couple of years, we've tried to put out one or two episodes a month. We hit a peak of 21 episodes back in 2014, which was a pretty great accomplishment, but which also meant that I had very little time for other creative pursuits. I've made the decision to scale things back to one release a month, as this seems like a more sustainable model. Next, Magic Brian officially took over as story editor as of the beginning of 2016 and is doing a great job of going through all of the recordings we've collected to date to decide which should be turned into podcast episodes and which should be re-recorded. Our main goal is to continually improve the quality of the content that we're putting out, so if you've done a recording for the Busker Hall of Fame project in the past and are wondering what the current state of things is, feel free to reach out and we'll be happy to let you know where things are at. Finally, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to Stuart Avery and the team from Dolphin Creative for their sponsorship support. Their contributions have made it possible to bring you nine episodes in the last seven months, so if you like what we're doing, maybe drop by dolphincreative.com and say thanks. And with that, let's get started. I used to perform in Atlantic City, and uh, it was a policeman on the motorcycle, and he asked the people to part so he could get through to me, and then he came up, and then when he came up, all the people uh, went back into their positions, and so the cop was around all these people. So there's a there's a cop in a motorbike with all these people around him and you on the floor. Yeah, that they just let him in up yeah. to me, yeah. right? You know, I you know, so I think back on this a lot because uh, <laughs> that uh, what was with that audience? Why didn't they just stay there and let him be on the other side? But anyway, he would, came up to try and stop me, and then the audience turned on him. <laughs> <laughs> So they had to let me finish, and then I, I ended up getting arrested. It was for disturbing the peace and uh, blocking a fire because of where I was performing. It was like a alleyway or something, and they called it a fire exit. So uh, I got arrested for that. But when the audience turned on him, on the cop, what are they doing, like screaming at him or chanting? Or they just... Yeah, well, they were saying, I didn't finish. Oh, yeah. And then some people say, well, we'll let him finish the interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting out going, oh, shit. So you, can, you should have gone, okay, then when I just take a, a day and a half to get out of this thing, right? Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. I've been told there are two types of people, those who set out with a specific goal in mind and those who set out with an eye towards adventure more so than on a specific destination. Tim Eric falls into the latter category. For over four and a half decades, Tim traveled around North America, pushing himself to the limit as one of the most extreme escape artists on the street. I remember meeting Tim at the Kingston Buskers Rendezvous years ago and being blown away by the fact that he literally changed color during the course of his escape. His face would go this dark shade of purple, and I was left dumbfounded by his dedication to the craft. His restraints were real. The challenge was real, and the reaction he got from the crowd was both visceral and powerful. Nick Nicholas connected with Tim via Skype for the conversation you're about to hear. It's a conversation that feels like it could be turned into an episode of The X-Files. Part personal history and part unexplainable events that may leave you scratching your head and wondering about this guy who's lived a life that's filled with so many great stories from the pitch. So, um, welcome stories from the pitch. My name's Nick Nicholas. I'm here with an old friend of mine I haven't seen for 20 years, probably, Tim Eric, I met maybe 30 years ago. I think we met in New Orleans, and Tim was an escape artist then, now living in Michigan. How are you, Tim? I'm fine. How are you doing, Nick? Yep, I'm doing great, mate. Uh, good to be back in touch with you, buddy. Isn't technology uh, marvelous uh, that I can be here in the U.S. and you there in uh, Australia and be able to do this little podcast here 
Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? So I met you, we met in um, Key West, and I was about 18. So that would be like 1980s. Yeah. Not in Key West, in New Orleans, sorry. It was in New Orleans in the 80s. Yeah, that's where we met at, was in New Orleans. Yeah, and uh, what amazed me was the fact that you had this straight jacket with no buckles and then the chains and the handcuffs, and I'd never seen such an escape before in my life, and I still, to this day, have never seen anyone escape from such bonds that you do. Where did you learn that, buddy? Well, what got me into doing it was uh, I first started performing at Hollywood Wax Museum in Hollywood, California, around the same time that Robert Shield the mime uh, group of Shields and Yarnell. They used to have a TV show with Cher and her husband. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that or not. No, we didn't have that in England, but I've seen footage of it, and I've seen footage of him performing on the street. So what year would that have been around? Oh, that's back in the late 60s, early 70s. We both started at the Wax Museum around the same time. And how I started there was I used to act like a wax figure in the horror chamber. And when you go into the horror chamber, the set that I was in was the first set that you would see. And they had a brass rail. And then back in the set, there was a coffin. And next to the coffin was a chair. And in the coffin was a wax figure. And then I would sit in the chair. And I was close enough to where people could come up and actually physically touch me. And it was my job to scare the people. And I wasn't very good in the beginning because uh, my body would be warm when they would touch me and they knew, uh, you know, I was a real person. Oh, yeah. My eyes would drift and they could detect that I was a real person. But I was determined to make them believe that I was a wax figure. So I picked a spot out on the uh, wall across from me above the heads of the people. It was just a little mark on the wall. And then I just started this process of meditating to try and bring down my body temperature. And the thing that I was doing it with was to slow down my heart rate. And it worked. When people would touch me, I would be cold. And then prior to that job, I was a dance instructor. So you were, the, you were one of the first statues to all those statues out there, Tim was doing statue in the 60s, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. We did more than just No, a, I know, I know. I just, I just think that's quite funny, though. Yeah. Anyway, before that, you were a yeah. dance instructor, you were saying? Yeah, a dance instructor. So your background and is for, dance. Right. And I worked for Arthur Murray Dance Studio above the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. And I didn't like selling the dance courses, and that's how you made your money. And that's how I came to go to the Hollywood Wax Museum, because I needed another job to supplement my income, because I was way into teaching. But uh, I wasn't really into selling the courses, because I thought it's something that sh people should get for free. <laughs> yeah. And so I got a part-time job at the Hollywood Wax Museum at nighttime. And then I started doing this moving around in different sets because the fire department got onto the, the management because people were hearing about me and they would come, especially on the weekends, would come to the museum to see the guy that they couldn't tell whether it was real or not. And so they put me out front. And that's where I became like a statue. That's when I started into the real pantomime of things. Because uh, it put me out front to hold the people out front for a while while so many people would go in. And then after like 30 minutes, then I'd go back in and I'd spend like 20 minutes in one of the sets. 
and be that human uh, wax person again. Right, just choose your character. You could just choose another character and go and sit down. Right, I would choose different characters. They never knew where I was going to be, you know. And then I started mimicking people when I was out front doing sight gags and, you know, comedy. Had you seen anyone do that before? No, uh, uh, Robert Shields and I were, and my younger brother, Don Littlejohn, we were one of the the first to do anything, you know, of that yeah. nature. There were maybe a couple little clips here and there in a movie or something, old-time movie or whatever, but especially on the street, we were pioneers in that area. Right. And at that time, my roommate his name was bernie orlando he held the world's record for escaping out of a straitjacket he set the record in a helicopter suspended by a cable and the cable going through the blades of a pair of ice skates and he had a handkerchief in his mouth and uh, then had a straitjacket on then when he released the napkin from his mouth they started the clock and then he proceeded to escape from it and it was 14.5 seconds at the time and he set the record at that time and was this a straight uh, jacket with no buckles or with buckles that was a straight jacket with buckles right i asked him to uh that i wanted to try it out and so this is the first way that we tried it out this was in our living room he put me in the straight jacket, and then he put me into this nylon bag, and then he tied off the bag into a knot. Then he told me that he wasn't going to go anywhere, and that if I wanted him to release me, he would. And, you know, so don't be afraid, he said. And that particular time took like five and a half hours for me to complete everything and I kept asking him during that time period to give me some kind of aid or or clue or or, you know some kind of help me with some kind of five and a half hours I mean what were you actually tied up in I mean that's like phenomenal it It wasn't a straight jacket like we see performers use today obviously it was a buckle jacket from the Posey company yeah and he kept replying to me when I would ask for some kind of direction. He would just say, it's best that I don't say anything and that you figure it out on your own because if you figure it out on your own, it'll have more value to you. So five and a half hours later, you know, I figured out how to do it. The thing was is that he was performing it where it was like they perform a magic trick, basically. Yeah. In other words, uh, the crowd strap was buckle, and the arms were buckles, and there were no arm restraints to where you could just barely take it over your head. You mean the loops that you put the arms through that are on the stomach? That's what you mean by the restraints. Right. Then uh, I didn't really like... uh, I had friends that performed magic... And I really didn't like magic because I always thought of it as uh, tricking people, and I didn't think that that was a good thing to be doing. <laughs> Thanks, I know it's mate. entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's entertaining, and I know people really know that they're being tricked, and they're fascinated how you trick them. But uh, you're just too honest, weren't you? Well, I just wanted <laughs> to authenticate it. I wanted to do it for real. You know, I didn't want to do it as a trick and I thought that it was possible and with my dance background and then with my experience and everything with pantomime and so you were still uh, working as a street pantomime at this time had you become a street performer by now well actually uh, I was doing a lot of different things at that time and being paid for it you know it wasn't uh, until I had been performing the escape for, oh, I think about a year. Because I started ending my performance out in front of the Wax Museum doing the escape. 
Then someone told me that I would make a lot more money if I just did it on the street. And so then I took one weekend off and went on the street, and they were right. I made a lot more money. <laughs> and this was when in the 60s? Right, because back then... No, you'd never seen then, a street performer, probably. Yeah, there were street performers. Back then, you know, the hourly wage was like uh, anywhere from 3 to $5, something like that. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think that weekend that I first went out, I made like $97, I think. Oh, man, so you just was, went, that was it, yeah? Yeah. Well, then I went to work for Universal Studios for a while. I worked for them for a while, too, entertaining the tourists when they would go through on the tour and do pantomime. And uh, I performed in New York with my brother and Jim Cellini. Yeah, your brother was a uh, pantomime as well, right? I met him in Chicago once. Yeah, my brother was a very good pantomime. He could always make me laugh. He was just a, a funny guy, you know? It's Don Little John, right? Yeah, Don Little John. His real name is Donald Hanneman, but his stage name was Don Little John. There's some footage out there, I think, probably in someone's uh, vault of him and I performing pantomime. I don't have a lot of footage on that. I have one escape that I performed in front of the New York City Library. We used to perform in front of there at noontime and when people would go home from work. And right. that was in the day of Charlie Barnett. I don't know if you're with him. Yeah. Charlie Barnett, yeah. Uh, and so you were the two brothers, man, the Buskin brothers. That must have been cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, because, like, we would critique each other, you know, with our acts, and we would share material. You know, we, I miss my brother, you know. I miss, yeah. I miss okay. performing now, you know. I don't perform anymore now, so I miss that. But I still could perform. Yeah. But uh, I live up in Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula. That's where the, the little finger is. Not a middle finger, a little finger. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's go back to where your journey um, that has taken you to Tunnels of Snow started. Um, in <laughs> so after you did a few street shows, you made 97 bucks, you ended up in New York, right? Did you just sort of go, well, I can make money, I can travel, so here I go? Yeah, that's kind of like the attitude I, or disposition that my mind was in or got into. Because I used to do this exercise. I did it for 13 years where I would leave Los Angeles and take the bear, and I took the stuffing out of the bear. Is this Muck Tuck? Muck Tuck. I remember you had that right. big panda bear, right? A giant panda bear. Right. Yeah. And I would take the stuffing out of Moktok and uh, sew in a zipper in his back. And then I would put the straight jacket and the chains inside of the bear. Then I would hitchhike across the country. And I would start with $1 in my pocket. And the object was to get to the East Coast with more than a dollar in my pocket by stopping along the way and doing shows. And I would always make it with more money than a dollar than I started with always, you know. And did you go back again? Did you, like, go east to west and then west to east? Yes. You know, for 13 years I did that. And uh, I met a lot of interesting people along the way. Like, uh, there was this one person, I don't really recall his name, but I guess you could look it up in records, that... Uh, Owned and started uh, Snap-on Tools. Oh yeah, I don't know. Have you? Yeah, have no, you heard that's, of Snap -on? yeah, yeah. That's that's a big brand, Snap-on Tools. Yeah, right. And I was hitchhiking, and uh, this person stopped and picked me up, and then uh, he took me uh, all the way to my destination, and then before he left, he uh, invited me for lunch at this restaurant. Then he bought me a really nice lunch, I remember, and it was a really nice place where we had lunch at. And then he took me back out to the highway, 
and then he gave me a hundred dollar bill. Wow! And, uh, wow, that was a lot. And then that was big deal, wasn't it? Oh, that was funny. Yes, at that particular time, I was shy about taking money or anything from people when I was hitchhiking because part of my objective was to perform and make it to the other coast with more money, but not by, you know, just someone giving it to me just to give it to me, you know, yeah, not yeah. earning it. Yeah. I squeamish about that. And, you know, I, I was that way with him. I said, oh, no, I can't do that, you know. And then he proceeded to tell me this story that, you know, if someone offers, you know, to do something for you, that you should really not say no and accept it because that the whole world to them that they were able to do that or do something for you. And that kind of taught me a good lesson, you know, in life. But I've had a lot of good experiences and met a lot of good people in the period of time and did you just career. did you just stop at any old towns? I mean, were you, did you have locations you were actually going to, or were you just in some sort of small town in the middle of America and went, oh, I've got to get out and get in my jacket? Right. That's exactly right. I didn't really preset any particular place to do a show. A lot of it was based upon dollars and cents. You know, yeah. because you don't know where your ride is going to go under that exercise. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, you've played towns that people have probably never heard of with postcodes that are like one figure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, in a local bar or something of that nature, you know. And uh, I've had a lot of interesting experiences. But you meet, you meet good people in those uh, places. So they take you, take you back to their house or they whatever, share a bed with you. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I can remember there was this one girl that I was with and when I was a performing in New York. She was hitchhiking across country with me, and we were going through this state, Michigan. We had really good equipment. I always had good equipment when I would travel. And uh, we were sleeping beside the road, and they offered to give us a place to sleep. And then when we woke up in the morning... They invited us to breakfast, and we told them what we did and everything. And then they uh, made an offer to give me a job at the university uh, teaching performing arts. But uh, I didn't take the job because uh, at that time I was on an adventure of a lifetime becoming a street performer. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. You just left the job, yeah. Yeah, you know. Because prior to uh, doing the performing, I was uh, spent three years in Alaska, in Fairbanks, Alaska. I worked on the pipeline up there. Oh, yeah. As a camp cook. You go up and you work. Uh, this is on the north slope of Alaska. It's up in the Arctic Circle area. It's where there's no trees. Wow. And uh, you can see the curvature of the earth. But then you go to R&R, rest and relaxation, for like six weeks. And then you go back up again. And when it was time for me to go back up again, I got a rash all over my body. I ended up not going back up and seeing six different specialists. No one could figure out what was wrong. And it kept me all drugged up on downers, you know, keeping me sleepy and everything all the time. I finally got tired of it, made an appointment in California, and 24 hours later, the rash was gone. I kept the appointment, and the doctor told me it was psychosomatic, that I caused myself to get ill so that I didn't have to go back up into that hostile environment. All right. And that experience, I used... Uh, lots of times as a performer when I performed. Right, to trick your body to do things, especially like to slow your heart rate down and like you were saying in the wax museum and stuff, yeah? Right. And then in, with the escape, I mean, you had to do some, I mean, to get out of the bonds that you got out of, uh, you had to slow everything down, I guess, right? Right, that's actually one of the key factors because... What set me aside was that uh, I would let people 
total strangers put me into the jacket and chain me and restrain me in any way they wanted. And as they're proceeding to do whatever it is that they want, I don't talk to them. I'm just meditating. I don't say anything to them. A lot of that is for preparation for myself and also it's to where I don't influence what they're doing. That is indeed a challenge from them and not configured from me by me instructing them or moving in some fashion. And that's part of the reason why I take the certain positions and demeanor as they are placing me into everything. Do you follow that? Yeah, I do follow that. I just want the listeners to know about the escape that you did. Um, when I first saw it, it blew me away. The everyone so they know, the straitjacket Tim used didn't have any buckles. It had eyelets just down the back and a big lace going through the eyelets. That's right, Tim, yeah? And, and knotted. Right. And the arms went through three loops which were across the stomach so they couldn't move up or down. The arm had one eyelet in one sleeve and a lace in the other that which was threaded round, pulled as tight as it could and knotted. And the crutch strap went through an eyelet and was knotted to everything. Now, I was put in that jacket when I first met you, Tim, and I couldn't move at all. It was... And then the chains are woven in and out and you've got your hands being handcuffed together over the top of the jacket. It's a, a pretty serious escape. It's like nothing I've seen before. I just want the listeners to understand what you were doing rather than what you see now, a straight jacket bought in a magic shop with um, a bit of chain on top. Yes, but you do, you know, I still do appreciate, you know... Uh, uh, I'm not saying uh, you don't. I just want to have that... People can have that picture in their head of um, what you were... I mean, it was a challenge. I, Every show was a challenge to you, seriously, wasn't it? Uh, yes, and part of the reason I chose to do it for real is to also demonstrate to my audience that everybody in their life has some kind of restraints or their uh, straitjacket of sorts, you know, going on in their life. And part of it was to try and enthuse people that no matter what's happening, that if you persevere, that you can overcome anything. And I tried to project that into the performance itself by completing the task. Yeah. And a lot of times they were odds that I really shouldn't have been able to do it if I was didn't have all of these little key things that happened in my life that uh, prepared me for all of those things, like the dance training, uh, the times that I spent in Alaska, and <laughs> just my travels throughout the country. Yeah. And there must have been times when you didn't get out. Were there times when you had to be cut out? Yeah, there's... Well, there no, because, was... Uh, because you'd like, lose oxygen. It would go around your neck three or four times, and sometimes I'd see your veins all sticking out the side of your neck. And so. Right. But that's what actually would set me aside from... You know, other people doing magic or whatever. It's because the audience could see that indeed the chains were preventing me from getting oxygen because I would turn different colors, you know. And the colors that I would turn, people knew that uh, usually people don't survive when they turn <laughs> those. <laughs> And, and then, I mean, were you, were you like passing out and people just staring at you or and then someone will just cut you out or something? Well, I could remember one time that I was performing in, uh, there's a little plaza in front of the Plaza Hotel at uh, 49th and 5th Avenue. I mean, 59th and 5th Avenue in uh, New York City. And I used to perform there. I had passed out, I was on the ground, uh, actually I passed out and went on the ground, and the people never knew, you know, that I was passed out, and uh, I came to, and I could remember seeing their feet when I came to, and then I completed the escape, and the audience never ever knew, but I knew, 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> How I, long do you think you're out for? Five minutes? Uh, I can't, I, you know, it's really hard for me to say, you know. Because but you, I do know, whatever the time it was, no one came to help. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck New York City. <laughs> they just but, thought, you they know, just saw you they just been at the you know, they just going, Is that guy real? Is he not? Like the wax museum. They go, Man, that maybe he's yeah. just <laughs> Yeah, that was one of my earlier times as a performer, but I've had numerous times of that particular nature because I passed out, you know, that uh I couldn't completed or they took yeah. me out of everything you know I, th I think you told me once you had a um, girl that you did the back-to-back -back with and she fell over you were back-to-back -back in the jackets with the chains oh yeah yeah that was with uh, jane her name was jane i forget her last name there's been a, several girls that have performed that double escape one was wanda york then uh, there was jane jane was the first one and uh, we were performing at Caddy Corner from the Twin Towers. Yeah. And we were chained back to back. She lost her balance trying to get a chain over her knee, one of her knees. And it brought us to the ground. And she hit her head on the pavement there. And at that particular pavement, it was uh, like pebbles poured in the concrete yeah and ouch. so but we happened to be lucky because in the audience uh, almost all the time when we would perform there the emergency service people and the <coughs> people that would work on the twin tower were part of the audience so they were right there so that was good for us you know but that did happen that particular time i felt so bad you know, it, when it happened, you know, because it was her that got hurt. Yeah. Not me. Yeah, she meets you know. this guy, you know, she you know, she meets this guy. Oh, you're a performer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Get chained up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Bang. <laughs> you know, there he is losing oxygen. She's banging her head on the ground. She's going, fuck, why didn't I just meet a guy who was a table tennis player or something? <laughs> 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 yeah, they all volunteered. Yeah, you know all the girls that performed. They all volunteered. You know, and Wanda York, she was a trooper. She was, she really enjoyed the challenge, and she really took it on. You know, for real. And so you were saying, so, then you went to did you go, in New Orleans. You hung out in New Orleans for a while. I mean, that's where I met you, and that was when uh -huh. um, I was uh, not was it Michael who got up the ladder. The guy Michael. Was it? Oh yes, yes. Yeah, and um, yes. Rocky and Cellini. You knew Cellini for a long time, huh? Yeah, in New York, I used to live at uh, this one place in New York at Forty Eighth and Eighth Avenue. I think it was called the Court Hotel or something like <laughs> that. It wasn't too much of a place, but it, it was like a one room. <laughs> That was it, you know, share a bath type of place, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but we all used to hang out there, you know, Jim and uh, Rocky and Kirk and wow. then my brother. It was my place, you know, with just one room. But oh. we used to hang out there. We used to talk about these shows and we used to, like, demonstrate different things on each other to see how you would react to different material or whatever. Or just discuss uh, how to maybe pattern a show. And this is when um, Jim was teaching Rocky as well, as when Rocky was Jim's student, Sunny Holiday. Yes. Rocky was the balloon clown before that, you know, twisting balloons yeah. and things. <laughs> Happy the clown, yeah. <laughs> but Rocky's a character in himself, you know. <laughs> yeah. Describe Rocky to the listeners. Some people don't know who Rocky Well, it's. For me, for some reason, Rocky got it into his head that he could be this sarcastic person and do magic and people would give him money for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, but he ran into trouble <laughs> quite a few times, I think, with the audience. 
so uh, you know uh, I can remember back a couple times when there was some mention of knives in play <laughs> I remember I, remember I don't know. seeing him when I was in New Orleans at the time when I met you I saw him and he's this tall skinny guy just screaming at the crowd and then he goes uh, he goes my name's Sonny Holiday. This is my magic wand, and it was a big fucking steel bar. And he whack it on the table, <laughs> and, and he whack it on the table. He go, anybody gonna leave? It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny, man. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah. I'm the greatest magician you ever see. If you see a better magician than me, you write his name and address on a piece of paper, put it in my hat. I'll find him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are the good days. You know, those, those are some of the memorable days that I performed in New York and New Orleans. And then, of course, uh, Key West had its good times, too, you know. And then... Uh, I don't know too much about Key West because it's been many, many years that I've been there. But I still keep in touch with some of the people there. But their politics are still the same, so I don't have two really rewarding yeah. things that I want to say about them just because <laughs> their politics are still the same. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, you, did you ever get the? Um, did you ever get the cops come up? You ever get pulled by the cops? You know, you're tied up in some little town, and the, you know the cops come up, and pick you up, and throw you in the van. You know, and say, "Get out of this, Houdini." Actually, in Santa Monica, California, someone got nervous in the audience, called nine one one, and then the police came, and I told them I was okay because the chains that I used were stainless steel chains, and they're expensive. <laughs> and I told them I was okay, and the cops wasn't going to have any of it, you know, because at that particular time I happened to be changing colors. <laughs> <laughs> Like their police car. <laughs> and so they weren't going to take a chance, and they cut the chains anyway, which really was disheartening to me. You know, probably one of the most amazing things that I've actually done is, uh, do you know or remember Frank Simon? Frank Simon, the guy who from Hungary who balanced stuff on his face. Right. He's like a five-time world record holder for doing that. Balancing big, heavy and stuff on his face, yeah. I went with him. He was doing an M&M commercial. Yeah. And I went to him on this photo shoot for that commercial. And they wanted to shoot me and him together. So he put me in the straitjacket and chained me. And then I sat in the chair. And the chair has no arms. And mind you, I'm in the jacket. And I have nothing to hold on to. And he's balancing the chair on his teeth. Oh, my God. That was, uh, <laughs> pretty, that was scary. pretty amazing. It was gutsy on his part. It was gutsy on my part. Yeah. It would be a great photo. What a great photo. Yeah, I, I have that photo. You have that you know, photo? I have it online somewhere. Right. Wow, what a great you know. photo. So you've basically it's, been street performing for, you started when, when you were in your, like, 20s, were you? Yes. You've been 50 years of street performing? Yeah. Well... I'd say uh, 45 years. Right. You know, because I haven't been performing the last, what, three, four years? Right. And have you been to every state? Have you, did, have you been to every state in America? I've been to every state except uh, Hawaii. Right. And I haven't been to any of the territories. And you've been... But I have been to Canada. You know, I've done several festivals and things and performed several places up there. Uh, that's the thing I was going to ask you, Tim. When you started performing, it wasn't a massive street performing community like there is now, and there wasn't a thing when the public knew what we did. No permits, no, you didn't need insurance. There wasn't ever such thing as a street performing festival. Do you think those days were better then than they are now, or like what advice would you give someone who wanted to come out and do shows now? Well, I think maybe it might be a better opportunity for the person who would like to do something of that nature it's probably easier to do today than it was back then because back then it was a territorial thing 
I can remember many confrontations I had over space. Uh, on the pitch, pitch fights. Like I told you uh, earlier, I performed in front of the New York Public Library. And my brother and I were the first performers to perform there. And then we started sharing space with other performers, like Charlie Barnett, the Calypso Tumblers, and numerous other acts. Because, uh, well, that's just the way we were. Yeah, yeah sure, know? sure. And it would, but would it, how would it work? Would it be like first come, first serve? You're like, you're there first? Or do you go like, I'm working at one, I'm here first. You guys do whatever you do around that. It would all depend, you know, because, like, I would like to say that I would map out what I'm doing career-wise. But back then, you lived every day as the day. <laughs> you never knew who was going to be there that day. You know, you didn't know how you was going to feel or act that day. Right. And then after a period of time, it was they tried to keep performers from performing there. So there were, was a period of time where you didn't know if the cops were going to shut you down that day. There was one stroke guy that used to tell us when he was going to be there or when he wasn't going to be there, you know, to help us out. Yeah. So you could just, you'll be going to work and it'll be like just a bad day and the cops will just shut you all down and that was it. Right. And then as someone would come by, you you wouldn't know who it would be because, like, people used to go to different pitches, especially in New York, and especially, like, at, at lunchtime, there were, there were many pitches you could go to because people would go outside, uh, especially in the summertime, when the weather's nice to eat their lunch or to commune with other people. There were pitches all over. There was a park. There was the Plaza Hotel. Uh, there was Rockefeller Center. There was Broadway. There was a village. There's uh, down by the statue. So many pitches. You never knew. You know. And there was a lot of performers. Like you said, there was like Charlie Barnett was there. It was Chilini? And you were living with Chilini and your brother Don at that time. And what other acts? Yeah. Was Johnny Fox working then? Or? I don't think I met Johnny Fox until later when I hung out in Colorado. There was a period of time, too, that I lived on uh, Roosevelt Island. You know where that is? No. It's a little island uh, in between Manhattan and Queens around 59th Street. There's a tram that goes from Manhattan to that island. But I used to camp out in that island and live in a tent. And then just get the transport into New York City. And do shows, yes. And there was a guy that used to take care of the park that I used to live in. <laughs> he would make sure that I would have things all the time if I needed anything. But he would never tell anyone that I was camping out there. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Good days, yeah. And Char it's Charlie Barnett, I never actually, I've seen him on video. Like He used to, he used to rock the place, didn't he? Really funny. Yeah, but... Charlie did this one movie called Taxi Cab, and after that movie, well, prior to that movie, he was using crack, cocaine. Yeah. And uh, he used to hang out with me all the time in back of the library. My brother and I would hang out in back of the library until people would go home, and then we would go back out in front of the library and do shows for the people going home. And Charlie used to hang out with me because I didn't do any of those things. You know, I might so uh, he, yeah. light up a green leaf, you know, but I wasn't doing any. The hard stuff, you yeah. Know. No. So he knew you I were would, like, you know, a, you know, a safe place to hang out because it, he wasn't being tempted or whatever and he could have a laugh. Right. And we used to have a lot of good times, you know, back at the library during that period of time because he'd try out some of his material on me or ask me what I thought or whatever, you know. Oh, great, buddy. Uh, have you taught anyone your escape that you did? Because I've never seen anyone else do it. Or do you think, uh, what advice would you give to someone who maybe want to try something that was as extreme as you did? Okay, well, that really <coughs> brings me to the story about the government. They did a study on me. 
they saw me perform in Key West. They couldn't explain how I was still able to function and turn the colors and everything that I did. And so they ran a test on me. Uh, it's classified material. And they did give me part of the data, the bio part for my own personal use. And uh, they're using the data for hostage situations and space exploration. Wow. They came yeah. up to what some guys saw you and came up and wanted to talk to you. Right. And at first, you know, I didn't really uh, realize a lot of what was happening because it was all kind of like quick and everything. And So the government wanted to study you and did all studies on you so they knew how to, to train other people to cope with hostage situations and being bonded up, etc. Right. And the first scenario that they put me through was how I normally would perform the escape. Uh, put me into a straitjacket and then um, restraining me with chains. And it was the concrete floor that I was working on. It was at the Miami studios where uh, they uh, filmed it. And I lost my balance and went down and hit the concrete floor. And a tooth, literally, when I hit the concrete floor, flew out of my mouth. And just like in the cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the first scenario that I went through. And after that happened, they all got spooked. They didn't know whether they should continue with it or not. And I actually had to talk them into continuing. And I tried to explain to them that it's part of my job, that... This is something that can happen at any time because of the nature of what I do is not a trick. Yeah. <laughs> and then they, you know, placed me into other different scenarios and they uh, made this plexiglass box and it was in the dimensions of like a trunk of a car and they had a lid and then they had a hasp type lock on it with a padlock yeah i was like laughing at him you know at that particular test because and I yeah, how are you going to get out of a trunk of a car that's padlocked well i explained to him you know i said this is a plexiglass box that you have me in and you have a hasp onto the plexiglass lid you know it was clear well right. the whole oh, okay, purpose yeah. was the whole purpose was so they could film it, right? Because they had me hooked up to telemetry, you know, monitoring all of my vital functions, my heart rate, my breathing, everything, you know? Yeah. And I told them, I said, well, I said, I'm just going to merely just destroy that box. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's a no-brainer, you know? It's a plastic box. And you put a metal hasp on a plastic box, and what's going to happen, you know, if you put some force to it? It's going to break, yeah. But then they put me through other scenarios. And the hardest scenario that they put me through was duct tape. What was the duct tape task? Were you completely duct taped up, or what sort of... Completely duct taped up, yes. Just round Bad and tape. round and round and round? Yeah, completely, you know. And that was tough how long did that take you took me a good while i don't recall the exact amount of time but they can tell you that study can tell you they like play back the video and everything of the first time that's how i know about my tooth popping out of my head is because they you know play back the rushes right that they did and <laughs> you could just see that tooth it's plenty to stay Pop right out of my mouth. Wow. When that happened, they didn't know what to do. But they kept the cameras running. And then they ran out and they got my friend, who was a secu my security guard. 
And then they asked him what to do. He said, give him oxygen. (laughs) 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 And so they gave me oxygen and then, you know, took me out of everything. And uh, then I had to talk him into continuing the study. Well, and that study is not a guide. Take it that's not public, that study. No, it's classified material. But, yeah, but, p- but they did give me the bio things for my own personal use. And they also told me, because they also did psychological evaluations, that I'm one of seven people in the world that's possible of completing a task like that. Wow. And that's because you can control your body in such a way, I guess. Right. And basically speaking, it's a form of meditation that I use. Biofeedback. Like if you're hooked up to a, you know, a monitor that emits light or emits sound uh, in accordance with your heart. Uh, that was one of the main things that they asked me to do was to uh, change the time on a clock by just you? thinking of move the hands on a clock just oh, yeah. by thinking it and I, w- I did it a few times tried it a few times wasn't successful but in the latter interim I was able to move the hands on the clock you move the hands on the clock by staring at it just by concentrating meditating that's how almost everything started in my career was based upon the knowledge that I had in dance and uh, the wax Hollywood Wax Museum. Those experiences prepared me to be able to do what I was able to do in, the, in my career as an escape artist. Wow. And to the point of the fact that you got so good at it, the government sourced you out and found out you were a one in seven people in the world and they wanted to understand you and your work to be used for hostage situations and then they wrapped you up in fucking duct tape and paid you some cash. How good's that? <laughs> yeah, it was a nice little uh, hat. A, but what a challenge, wrapped up in duct tape. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they had, you know, several different scenarios that they put me through, you know, different ways of restraining me to different things and with different items, you know. And would you suggest to someone to um, ever try your escape that you used to do? It depends upon the individual. Like, for an example, I was in Venice, California, and my... One straight jackets were just completely shot. One arm was out of it and uh, had a couple other holes in it, in the canvas. And then I was performing with this one juggler that used a ladder. And so I took this one pole and stuck it through the rings of the ladder and then uh, we'd get in this jacket that only had uh, one arm, actually. <laughs> and then chain me to this pole that's wrapped around this ladder. and Like a light pole. You know, this is like a pole in the street, a light pole or something. Well, it was a pole that would go through my arms. Oh, okay. Oh, I see, yeah. And then it would go through the rings of the ladder, and they would chain me to the ladder with this to, yeah, with yeah. The pole. Yeah, wanted to do it you know and you know I would always do different things I did a lot of different hanging escapes and built apparatuses to do that and had experiences to where I fell and knocked myself out and I did that in Venice several times in Venice California in the earlier years wow what an extreme way to make a living and who knows if I, I and I don't feel like I'm done yet you don't sound like you're done. Because, uh, you know, I still have a desire to perform. I still know that I'm capable. And uh, I've already, you know, been placed in the jacket. 
although I you know only have the use of one arm and one arm's basically paralyzed, I can still perform the escape. But the only thing that I'm reserved about is I'm not sure if the audience wants to see a handicapped person perform an escape. Yeah, but why, hey, once you're tied up in something, they won't even know you're handicapped. They just think it's part of the thing. You used to go different colours and twitch anyway. I mean, come on. But it's really obvious, yeah, yeah. you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't walk that well. I right. use a power kicker. And, and uh, where can people, there's um, footage on your website of um, your work? Yes, there's uh, four escapes that I have that uh, they can see on YouTube. Or they can go to my website, which is timeric.com. And, like, you know, you've been street performed all over mainland America and um, Canada, and for 45 years you've lived performing and entertaining on the streets mainly. Has it been good to you? I mean, what a life. Would you suggest it's it? It's been a great life. Would you suggest it if, to would anyone? I, would I suggest it to anyone? Yes. You know, everyone has their talent. Everyone has a street performer inside of them. Some people might feel that it wouldn't be appreciated. If you take that street performer that's inside of you, that desire, and you put it out there, and you see what goes in that hat, you're going to get hooked. And you realize that you don't have to work for the man ever again. You can just do positive goodness. Right. I mean, at the same time, you're, you're entertaining people. You're uh, creating a, a comfortable living for yourself. And some people might think, you know, that uh, a street performer doesn't make very much money. But in my lifetime as a street performer, I'm sure that I've gone through several million dollars. I wasn't maybe frugal with as much of it as I could have been. A lot of street performers live for the day. <laughs> yeah, totally. But they do a lot in that day, things that affect other people's futures and other people's lives with the support that they got in their hat. Yeah, totally. And they do technically pay taxes because spending that money is taxed a long way somewhere. Everything's taxed somewhere. Great chatting to you, mate, and it's great to have a laugh. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have a great day. All right, thanks very much, buddy. Chat to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. See ya. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org and huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for the podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. Beyond just the episode notes, though, I'd encourage you to swing by Tim Eric's website at timeric.com. It's a pretty interesting collection of images, videos, and special reports about Tim, his life, and his special abilities, and well worth visiting the next time you're on your computer. And while you're on your computer, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. While you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Busker Hall of Fame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website. And to close, we wanted to leave you with just one more story of Tim and an encounter he had with law enforcement. I was in Reno, Nevada. 
in the early years when uh, street performing wasn't really heard of too much. When, when in, in the seventies. Yes, and at the end of my act, I used to demonstrate to people how quick and how easy it was to pick a pair of handcuffs. And uh, the police department there didn't like it. <laughs> and one night they came, and there was a little alleyway. They pulled in the alleyway, got out of their car, came and swooped me up, one on each side, dragged me to the alley, and threw me onto the hood <laughs> of the car. And then uh, I got arrested, and I forget what they, they charged hand, me. They put handcuffs on you? Yeah, and then they told me if I get out of them that they was going to blow my head off. <laughs> and You said which head? <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Story Editor Magic Brian, Nick Nicholas for capturing this conversation, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. If you persevere, you can overcome anything.